This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. First, I just want to express my thanks to you for listening, for taking the time to listen to what I have to share. I really do hope that it's encouraging to you. As you hear at the end of each of these episodes, it's my daughter's voice, by the way, Valerie, quoting Jesus. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. That is my purpose in these talks, is to encourage you to really do the will of God, to know it and to do it, because you're going to be happy, and you're going to stand on a firm foundation when you do the will of God. That's true for all of us, and that's the message that Jesus so often expressed. He said, now that you know these things, you're going to be blessed if you do them. If we do the will of God, then we're going to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Well, last time I mentioned a change that Paul went through as he traveled from Athens to Corinth. So I'd like to take some time to look at this event in his ministry. And we start in Acts chapter 17. This will be the first place to look. Now, as we come into Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul and the brethren had had some trouble in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. Paul and Silas had been imprisoned in Philippi, and then later they were attacked by mobs that wanted to harm them. And Paul ends up in Athens, waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him there. And we pick this up in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that is, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy, while Paul is waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And then in parentheses, Luke writes, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Well, let's take a look at this as we lead up to um, what happens as Paul goes from Athens to Corinth. We're looking at what is happening in Athens. And there are these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they want to know what he's saying, and they actually take him to a meeting of the Areopagus. So let's take a moment to look at what all of these things are. Now, the Areopagus is a rock outcropping in Athens, Greece. It's a place where people would meet. And it was a location of a court that was also called the Areopagus that had trials. And among other things, there were cases involving religious matters. So these philosophers have brought Paul to a place where the philosophers expect this sort of religious discussion. And it's a place where they're going to judge religious events. So that's what the Areopagus is. They have brought him to them because they want to judge this. 
An Epicurean is a student of a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicureans, of course, I'm being quite shallow here, but just generally, they valued and pursued sensual enjoyment, especially sensual enjoyment related to eating and drinking. Epicureans were materialists, uh, meaning that they believe only in the material world and they reject any idea of a divine or divine intervention in the workings of men. For an Epicurean, the greatest good was to seek modest, simple, sustainable pleasure in the form of tranquility and a freedom from fear, and also the absence of bodily pain. So that's happiness in its highest form for an Epicurean. Pleasure, an absence of bodily pain, tranquility, freedom from fear. And interestingly, the Epicurean philosophy was at odds with the Stoics, Stoicism. And Stoicism is a philosophy of personal ethics, a system of logic, and an understanding of the natural world. They're also materialists. And in Stoicism, happiness is found in accepting the moment as it is, living in the moment and not being controlled by a pursuit of pleasure or a fear of pain, like the Epicureans. For the Stoic, you live in the moment, and what is good is using one's mind to understand the world and to take one's part in the plan of nature. The Stoics wanted to become clear and unbiased thinkers, not driven by passions or fears of pain, They wanted to be thinkers that understood the universal reason. And this is interesting. The word that they applied, the Stoics, to the, quote, universal reason is logos. So the Stoics wanted to understand the logos by using their mind and their thinking and being clear and unbiased. Now, there is a danger in philosophy, and that is claiming to be a truth seeker, but not really submitting to the truth. People, philosophers, and generally people, choose the truth that best suits them. And in doing so, people take the place of God. They decide what is right and what is wrong for themselves. Instead of submitting under the truth of God, we sit above different truths and we judge them ourselves. We put ourselves above truth. And in that sense, we do, in a way, take the place of God. We decide what's right and wrong. And it's really easy to shop around for ideas, like collectors who get pleasure from a collection, but it's really just a hobby. And we'll talk about that kind of person later. And I think Paul was dealing with people like this. The scriptures say that the Athenians and the foreigners who were in Athens spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening about the latest ideas. I can imagine them sitting out in cafes, perhaps, and just chatting and talking. It's a hobby, probably a very earnest hobby, and they're deeply committed to this hobby, but they still are in the position of judging what is true and what is not true. As I said, we'll talk about that kind of person a little bit later. Well, then Paul addresses the meeting of the Areopagus, and this is starting in verse 22. And this is familiar to many of us. I'll go ahead and read what he said. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And Paul goes on. In verse 29, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, and he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the ending of Paul's argument. It says that he had been talking about the resurrection previously in the marketplace and in the synagogues, and here again he's presenting this argument and ending with the resurrection as proof that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus does have authority. And then it says, when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, when these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. And after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So Paul has this meeting in the Areopagus, and after that he goes away. He leaves Athens and he goes to Corinth. And I looked it up. I googled it. A trip by car from Athens to Corinth takes about an hour. By road, which sort of follows around the coastline, the distance from Athens to Corinth is about 80 kilometers. That's about 50 miles. Now that's at least two days by foot, though we don't know how Paul made that trip. It's not a terribly long distance, and it gave Paul a day or so to ponder what had just happened in Athens at the Areopagus. So before we move on to him arriving in Corinth, I want to recap what's happened. The philosophers want to hear Paul, and they take him to the Areopagus. And this is their pastime. It's their hobby, listening to new ideas, gathering ideas. And they sneered at his teaching because they were materialists. They sneered at the resurrection. They sneered because there are no miracles. Dead bodies do not come back to life. They're materialists. They didn't sneer at the call to repentance. They sneered at the resurrection. And they sneered at the very thing that is the historical proof of the authority of Jesus. The resurrection puts us in a place where we must accept or deny the authority of Christ. It's a historical truth. It's a claim of historicity. It's not just a claim of ideas. It's a claim of fact, actual, physical fact. And they didn't accept it. And the scriptures here say that a few believed. And I'm going to focus in on that word, few. A few believed. And I believe that's key. Now, why do I think Paul went through a change of perception or heart or conviction as he traveled from Athens to Corinth? Well, I believe this because of what he later wrote to the church in Corinth, in the first letter that we have, the first Corinthians. In chapter 2, Paul writes, 
When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's why I think Paul went through a change of thinking as he moved from Athens to Corinth. On the way, on that 80-kilometer road from Athens to Corinth, I believe that Paul considered what had just happened in Athens. There had been much eloquence and superior wisdom. There had been philosophical arguments and reasoning. And Paul determined that people's faith should be based on God's power, not on wise words. A few people believed, and as he thought about this, he realized that he needed to be weak in himself. Paul determined that people's faith should be based on God's power, not his power, and not on wise words. Our faith should not rest on wisdom of men, but on God's power. As we start reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, this is a, an excellent example of how the chapters break up the line of thinking at times. Paul contrasts God's wisdom with the world's wisdom, and he contrasts God's power with the world's power. And that line of reasoning flows through the chapter break between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So, let's begin a bit earlier in chapter 1. And this is where Paul begins his discussion of wisdom and power. Starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. 
Therefore it is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's the full section, this line of thinking that Paul has about wisdom and foolishness, weakness and power. And if you do a study there, the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and early into chapter 2, underline the word power and wise and wisdom. This is what Paul is talking about. God uses the weak to show his power. Remember the story of Gideon. Gideon said to God, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. God is calling Gideon to save Israel, and Gideon's answer is, Well, my family is the weakest, and I'm the weakest in my family, so I'm the weakest of the weak. I'm the least of the least. And what does the Lord say to Gideon? The Lord answered, I will be with you. This is the key. Do you feel spiritually weak and think that you're ignorant when it comes to spiritual things? Good. Great. You're in the perfect place to be used by the Lord for his glory. You've got no room to boast. If you're weak and ignorant, that's great. That's the kind of people that God uses. And you might think, how can I save someone? I'm not a spiritual powerhouse. And God's reply to you is the same as to Gideon. I will be with you. God will give you his spirit to empower you to serve effectively. Remember, God is not looking for people to follow him based on persuasive and wise words, but on a demonstration of the power of the spirit. Our faith should not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And this brings to mind something that Paul wrote to Timothy. I mentioned a little earlier that some people collect ideas but don't really submit themselves to the truth, like collectors who get pleasure from their collection, but it's just a hobby. So here Paul mentions people like this. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Boy, that's quite a list, isn't it? There will be terrible times in the last days, and we certainly are getting a good taste of this list when people are lovers of themselves. My goodness, that teaching is, is a cancer in the body of Christ, teaching people to love themselves before they can love others. Paul's list is uh, pretty impressive, and it's a caution to me, and it should be a caution to all of us that any one of us can fall into these things. So we really need to love the Lord and abide in him 
And we should not be lovers of ourselves. We should not be lovers of money. We shouldn't be boastful or proud or abusive or disobedient to our parents. But what I want to focus on here is how Paul talks about these people, people who love pleasure rather than love God. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. To be honest, I think that's pretty common. People having a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Just like those philosophers in Athens. Uh, They had a form of righteousness, but they were denying the resurrection, the power of God. Well, this brings to mind a question for me. How was this power of God exhibited by Paul when he went to Corinth? Paul says when he went to Corinth, he wanted their faith to be based on the power of God, not on wise and persuasive words. But how did this power exhibit itself? And I think it is significant that Paul talks about spiritual gifts when encouraging the church in Corinth. And he calls spiritual gifts manifestations of the Spirit. Now, I want to be careful here. I know that any discussion of spiritual gifts can really be off-putting to many Christians. Uh, And honestly, as a young believer, it was off-putting to me because I didn't really understand it. And there's a very real danger of the gifts overshadowing love. I remember one time at a prayer meeting, uh, the man leading the prayer meeting was very charismatic, I guess would be the word, wanting everyone to have the gift of tongues. And he went around the circle, and he came to me, grabbed me by the side of my face, and was screaming at me, commanding me to speak in tongues. And boy, it just really put me off. <laughs> it wasn't peaceful. It was, uh, he was really yelling at me. And I was a young believer, and it overwhelmed me a bit, the way that he was treating me. So I know that any discussion of spiritual gifts can really hit some buttons for a lot of believers. Like I said, there's a very real danger of these gifts overshadowing love, and that is precisely why Paul wrote about the primacy of love. The Corinthian believers were very gifted people, and Paul saw the need to emphasize what's more important than spiritual gifts, faith, hope, and love, above all, love. And these are lessons for the church today, for sure. If we are supremely gifted and yet do not love, then we're just nothing. We're just a loud noise that has no real effect. And yet, Paul tells us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Why? Because they are the manifestation of the Spirit. They are given to the church so that the church can love and serve effectively, powerfully. The gifts are given to help others, not so that we'll be proud of our spirituality or be boastful, goodness no. They are tools that express the flow of God's love and power. I believe that Paul is referring to spiritual gifts when he mentions the power of God. Paul came to Corinth, weak in himself, depending on the Spirit to move in power so that people's faith would not be based on his wisdom, but on the real, experienced power of God through spiritual gifts. Paul was very intelligent. He was highly trained. He had a very sharp mind, and, you know, really, he may have often been the smartest person in the room, but that meant nothing to him, and it means nothing to God. The important thing is for people, individuals, 
to come to God, to experience the flow of God's loving life, to be set free from sins, to be made anew, to have a new life, and not just to have a mental agreement with a series of ethical ideas. In that sense, Christianity isn't really a religion like a series of ethical or religious tenets. It's a flow of life from the creator of the universe through the people that he's created to give them a new spirit, to renew their spirit, to put his spirit within them. I want to take just a few minutes here to talk about spiritual gifts here mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me read a part that is familiar and then talk about it a little bit because the overall purpose of what I'm sharing here is that we also would move in this power of God so that our faith would be based on an experience of God, living with God, not just standing at a distance and agreeing to his teachings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we read, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. I'll stop right there for a second. In the future, I'll do a study of this. There are three different words here that refer to what we call spiritual gifts, but only one of them is actually the word gifts. In verse 4, it says there are different kinds of gifts. In verse 5, different kinds of service. And in verse 6, different kinds of working. Those are all different Greek words that have different meanings, actually. And I'll talk about that in the future. I won't get into it right now. Continuing in verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. There it is. Spiritual gifts, these spiritual giftings that we have, are manifestations of the Spirit and given to help everyone. Verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another miraculous powers. To another prophecy. To another distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to another, still, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one, just as he determines. Again, I want to underscore this. This is so important. All of these gifts are given to help people, to lift them up for the common good. And all of these gifts, and others that are listed in other places in the Scriptures, are given by God through the Spirit, as manifestations of his power. And when I say power, I'm just talking about the flow of his life, like our life power in our bodies. It's the flow of his life. And Paul mentions wisdom and knowledge and faith, healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, spiritual discernment. I do want to say something here about tongues. It's funny that it's translated that way because we don't really use that word very often in the way that it actually means. Different kinds of tongues means languages. In Russian, the word for language is also the word for tongue. And in English, occasionally, when we say he was speaking his native language, you could say he was speaking his mother tongue. So Paul is just saying it's speaking different languages. And he says a little bit later that there are languages of men and there are languages of angels. But it's not gibberish, it's actually a language. 
And uh, perhaps you've heard, I've heard, of people who speak in tongues. They don't know what they're saying, but someone in the room does understand that language and hears what God is saying. So it's really not a mystery, I guess, in that sense. It's one of the gifts that God gives for the common good. If somebody comes in and then hears another person speaking in their native language and knows that the speaker has never studied that language, that's really going to touch their heart and say, oh yeah, that is from the Lord. I want to say that gifts are given in Acts chapter 2, not in Acts chapter 28. Remember in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this gift of speaking in other languages is immediately given. Gifts are given in Acts chapter 2, not in Acts chapter 28. It's not only possible, but it's common for Christians to be spiritually gifted and yet not spiritually mature. I think I've witnessed this in my lifetime, as there are people, very gifted people, who lead revivals or big ministries, but they're actually young believers, and then pretty soon their lives go off the railroad tracks, they crash and burn. It is common for Christians to be spiritually gifted, but not spiritually mature. And that's, of course, why Paul wrote much of what he wrote to the church in Corinth. They were gifted, but not mature. Well, why would God do it that way? Well, I think it's because he knows that his power is what grips the heart and makes his reality known. His gifts are a manifestation of his spirit, and it is by his spirit that we come to faith. The flow of his life is the goal, and as his life flows in his people, then we grow up and we become more and more mature. So the gifts come early, and the maturity comes later. We have to keep that in mind. And the great, great danger, and it's a danger that the church in Corinth fell into, and people still fall into, is that we get so excited about this flow of God's Spirit, the power of His Spirit in these giftings, that we become selfish or boastful and forget that His gifts are given for the common good so that we can serve better. Well, as Paul moved from Athens to Corinth, he assessed those events at the Areopagus, all those conversations and the attitudes of the philosophers. And I believe he thought about the character of God and the meaning of faith and the place of spiritual power in evangelism. And it's good for us, too, to consider these things and ask the Lord how he wants us to move in humble power so that people will know him and enjoy him forever. Well, friends, until next time, I pray that the Lord will reveal his ways and his will to you. And I pray that you'll walk in his ways, because as we do that, we have peace for our souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.